Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to continue our study on Christian worship, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through chapter 11 and verse 1. So 10, 23 through 11, 1, you're going to begin to make your way there. Uh, now, Paul's going to do something interesting in this. He's going to relate back to something he said back in 6.12. And so we've got a number of things I just want to establish for us as we move through this. And um, it, it, it's really asking, 10.23 through 11.1, it's really asking a, a good question of us that I think is, is difficult to respond. And, and our response is going to look different in all the various situations that we find ourselves in. Not that it's portraying this kind of situational ethics where I don't know what to do until I get into the situation, but it's asking us to be sensitive to the needs of the people that we are around. And I think this is a good thing. This passage, in some sense, is asking us to be emotionally intelligent and to be emotionally sensitive. Emotional intelligence, knowing when I need to shut up, right? Which seems to be my issue. But, but kind of emotionally sensitive, knowing that where my behavior can be positively or negatively impacting the people that are in my sphere, that are in the place where I happen to find myself uh, standing, where I end up finding myself living. My neighbors, my coworkers, the people I'm standing in line and being sanctified with at Walmart. And so in essence, the, the passage is giving us an indication that we can either live our lives uh, selfishly for us, or we can live our lives selflessly for somebody else. And so I can either live my life to satisfy myself, or I can live my life in such a way to be impactful to all those that God puts across my path. Let's just begin to, to work through this. Let me read 10, 10 23 through 11, 1, and then we'll walk through it together. Paul writes, he says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat what is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, hey, this has been offered in the sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of, the, for the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which, for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try and please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And then lastly, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So this idea that we can live our lives selfishly or selflessly, now look how Paul begins. He begins in very much the same way that he did back in 6.12. In 6.12, what we find is that there's this party of people there in Corinth that thought it, didn't matter what I, it doesn't matter what I do. I can be engaged in any behavior that I want to because I am free in Christ. And while it's true that we are free in Christ, we're not, uh, we're not entangled, we're not enslaved to our sin, we aren't just free to do anything we want to do. And so Paul uses their words to ask this question. He says, all things are lawful. Notice he doesn't rebuke the sentiment, but he adds a caveat. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And then he says it again. He says, all things are lawful. 
It says, but not all things build up. Now notice, one of the things he's doing here is he's at least entering into the midst of the discussion they're having. And the discussion they're having centers around personal autonomy. The ability for me to do whatever I want and just, I don't really care how it affects the people around me. And so Paul takes that mindset, he takes that idea that it's really where we ended last week with the idol of individualism and individual expression, and he wants us to understand that Christianity cannot be lived in isolation. That if you came here Sunday in and Sunday out and you don't have anything to do with the people around you, you're not invested in their lives, you're not allowing them to invest in your life, then you are in some sense living an illegitimate expression of Christianity. Because Christianity isn't just about the change that God has affected in you, it's about us journeying through life together. God has made us a people together, he has not made us individuals. Do you see the difference there? And so if I'm an individual living out an individual expression of Christianity, then I don't care how my faith is impacting the people around me. And I don't care how they're being impacted by the things in their lives. And I might have as a manner of of kind of encore of my life or this description of my life, all things are lawful. And, And such a description and such an articulation of faith denigrates the people around us and doesn't take them into consideration. So he says, you need to understand something. Not everything you do is helpful to the people around you. And we would say this is true. We would say this is our experience. Whether you're wise enough and sage enough to say that the things you do can negatively impact the people around you, at least you would say that sometimes the things the people around you do negatively impact you. And so we're, we're quite adept, we're quite skilled at observing when negativity comes our way, but a way that we find ourselves slipping up, failing and falling and not caring about is, is this understanding that the negativity from our lives is visited upon others. One asks us to be charitable. The other asks us to critique the manner of existence of those around us. So Paul wants to move in. He wants to begin to address this manner of life, this manifestation of living. So look at verse 24. It says, how do we answer the issue of individualism and of selfishness? Well, it's quite simple. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, Paul's not saying, no, look, you should never ever look into doing something that benefits you. But he's saying, this isn't something we struggle with. Most of us struggle with a limitation of self-seeking of good. This is just candidly where most of us are. If you're on the opposite side of the spectrum and and you're this person who's constantly spending your life pouring out to the good of others, that's great. Can I use you as an example? Let's bring you up here. But most of us find ourselves needing to understand that there needs to be some type of limitation of our expression of selfishness. So Paul says, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. So the question becomes logically, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus answers this classically for us in the tale of the Good Samaritan. In Luke 10, 25 through 37, you'll remember this tale. This lawyer comes up, and and, and Jesus, he asks Jesus, he says, what's the greatest commandment? What do I need to do? And Jesus says, well, what do you say? And the guy largely quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. He says, you need to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and, and mind, and you need to love your neighbors yourself. So Jesus tells this story. And in the story, we see this guy who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he, lo and behold, he falls into robbers, and these guys beat the snot out of him, and they lead him by the side of the road uh, near death. 
And as Jesus begins to move on and, and, and build up the anticipation and intention of the story, he sends two religious figures down the, down the line. He says, uh, and then a priest came along, and then a Levite came along. And when they see this guy, they cross over, and they get as far away from him as possible because they don't want to be adversely impacted by this guy. They don't want to be bothered by him. They don't want to have their lives impacted and, and to, to make them late to some important date or something. He said, and then we see this guy, this Samaritan, who's just the most unlikely of sorts. He's a, a, a natural enemy to the Jews. And so you've got this Samaritan. And as he travels down the line, he invests himself. He doesn't merely observe, but he comes close to the man in need. And he shoulders the man's burden. And he carries him to the town. And he provides for the man's burden. Provides for the man's need. So Jesus asked the lawyer, he said, which one of these men proved to be a neighbor? Which one of these men proved to do good? The Lord can't even bring himself to say it was a Samaritan. He says, the one who acted mercifully. In Jesus' response, go and do likewise. And so we ask this question, who is my neighbor? My fear is that many of us ask the question of who my neighbor is because we, like the lawyer, want to limit our responsibility. And so I would say that, that my neighbors are those who live on, on uh, my street. Those neighbors are those people who kind of hit my southern and eastern boundaries, kind of where my house is. Oh, you know, maybe my neighbors is, is, is the lady across the street. Oh, maybe the la- my neighbors are the people in the cul-de-sac. But, but my neighbors are the people that just kind of live on that horseshoe of my neighborhood, the 20-plus the homes that are there. That's a pretty sorry expression of who is my neighbor. So maybe if I looked at it and said, well, my, ma- my neighbors are the people that live on the south side of Greenville. So it's just kind of I-30 and south to Lone Oak. Not, not down to Quinlan necessarily, but definitely to Lone Oak. <laughs> and, so, and, and those people are my neighbors because I, I, I live down that way. And so all the people on the north side, I'm sorry. I just, you know, I got to work on limiting things. You guys are, you know, you have your own issues and there are people that live on the other side of 30. Maybe you look at that and say, well, that's, that's a little ridiculous. That's a little bit... That's a little bit, you're, you're cordoning yourself off. I say, okay, fine, we'll go north of 30. But really, when you get outside the city limits of Greenville, we have to begin to draw some limitations here. Your neighbors are everyone that God sovereignly brings across your path and gives you an opportunity to impact. Now, the great difficulty of this is we now reside within a global community. So your opportunities to be engaged are practically limitless. They're practically limitless. So you can jump on a plane and fly to the other side of the world. You can catch news and unfolding events the world over. Your opportunity to engage those people and act neighborly towards them is practically limitless. But we are fantastic at crafting and selecting limitations on on the demands that are able to be put on our life by our situations and largely by our caring. We don't want to be neighborly to people who have greater needs than we feel the ability to answer or to solve. And I can tell you that most of the needs of this world are so far beyond your ability to solve them. 
but God has created you and he has given you a heart for people and he has given you a life to live so that you might go and display the glories of his gospel in situations well beyond your control, but well within his hand. Will you be neighborly? This is what he calls us to. Let no one be captivated and caught up in this understanding of repeatedly seeking their own good, but seeking the good of those around them. Who is my neighbor? Now, in terms of in Corinth, Paul wanted them to understand, and so he lists some things that are specific to first century life, things we normally uh, wouldn't encounter here. So he's going to give them some examples stemming from what he's talked about in 8.4 and in 10.19, and then here in this section, uh, meat sacrificed to idols. So look at what he says. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. And so the way that it would work, uh, they'd have a, a temple, and so it's a temple to Jupiter or to, or to whoever, and they would offer sacrifices. They would slaughter a bull or, or, or sheep or, or some other animal. And then that meat, a lot of it would be taken to a meat market. And in this open meat market, they didn't put a little flag in there that says, this cow was raised in Italy. This is Chilean beef. This is Argentine beef. So it's not like they're going through, like, tell me, can you tell me a little bit about what I'm getting ready to eat? Oh, yeah, Sasha was delicious. I mean, she'll be delicious. She was fed grass, primarily, you know, a little bit of corn. She was really sweet to the people that owned her. And then we slaughtered her, and here she is for you. We suggest that you pair her with some asparagus. We think Sasha would be delicious. It wasn't like this. They're not preoccupied with, with labeling all the things. I remember reading through a label uh, a little bit ago. It was this package, and, and it says, uh, recipe, uh, no nuts, ingredients, no nuts, made in a factory that is nut-free. And at the bottom it says, cannot guarantee, nut-free. <laughs> and I say, hold on, let me read this again. Okay, so the recipe calls for no nuts. Check. We added no nuts in when we made this. Check. We even have machines in, in our factory that have never touched nuts. Check. But you're telling me there could be nuts? Absolutely. That's what I'm telling you. You're figuring this out. Ostensibly, there could have been a man who was eating a PB&J who dropped it into that and said, well, <laughs> mostly nut-free. <laughs> really glad about that packaging. And so Paul tells them, he said, look, you're not trying to get at the, the family history. You're not trying to find out the lineage of these things. You have a conscience that isn't mandating your investment in there, and it stems from a theological understanding. Paul doesn't just tell them it's okay to be uh, ignorant, that ignorance is bliss. He said, you need to understand that theologically, you're okay. Theologically, you're in the clear. And he quotes from Psalm 24. Psalm 24, 1 and 2 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns everything. And verse 2 tells us why. It says, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Because God created all things, all things owe honor and glory to him. So Paul says when these meats come from this temple and when they're no longer in the midst of this cultic sacrifice, they are amoral. They are morally neutral. So he says, don't worry about it. You can eat these things. But now he begins to provide uh, a, a touch, a different deal to this. He complicates the story. He says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, you're disposed to go eat whatever's set before you without raising any, any questions on the ground of conscience. 
So he says, much like when you're walking through the meat market and you're like, oh, I love veal. Oh, I love chicken. Oh, I, oh, this would be delicious. Oh, is that Sasha? Is that Sasha's cousin? When you're in the midst of this, don't raise conscience. No, when you go to this unbeliever's house, and so this is giving us a number of different things. One, it is good for Christians to dine with non-Christians. If the people in your group, the people in your sphere are only Christians, I would tell you that you are failing. If you don't have non-Christians who you could invite to your home or you stand the opportunity of being invited to their home, then you're limiting your ability to be a positive witness for Jesus. And so he, he concocts this scenario. He says, an unbeliever has invited you into their home and they set food before you. And so you have this large uh, you know, trays of meats and all these things in front of you. And, and when it's set there, just eat and smile and say, this is delicious. This is delicious. I appreciate it. So this is the manner that Christians need to do. We need to be gracious when we go and are enjoying what people set before us. But he says, hold on a second. Let me make it more difficult for you. If when you're there and if when it's set before you, somebody taps you on the shoulder, and, and let's just be charitable. Let's say they're trying to be helpful, and they say to you, don't eat the meat. And they tell you, look, it's not Sasha. It's not. It's tragic but it's Beelzebul, Sasha's cousin. And she was just at the temple being sacrificed. Oh, this is difficult, right? Sasha was well cared for. She's going to be tender. I can't wait to eat her rare. But Beelzebul, Sasha's cousin. Man, these people have odd names for their animals. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> he says, in the midst of this, you need to understand something, that, that if you were to eat, you're going to be violating the conscience of someone else. Now, this is difficult for us. Let me tell you why it's difficult. Because in 8.4, Paul said, neither the idol nor the meat nor any, none of these things have any bearing. So they are morally neutral. And in 10.19, he said, you need to understand, you can't go to the temple and engage in these sacrifices because when you do, you're condoning idol worship and you're, you're being a participant with demons. But now, I'm not in the temple. I'm in a situation that is morally neutral and that is set before me and if I'm not informed, I can eat. But the moment I begin to be informed, and, and, and the chances are I'm informed because somebody thinks it is going to make a difference to me. Somebody thinks it is going to change the outcome of how I engage this meal. He said, at that moment, you can't eat. At that moment, you can't engage. You have to be sensitive to the new information that you've been given. He says, you can't eat because of the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. Paul calls on us to be emotionally sensitive to the needs of the people around us. One of the ways that we prove to be a good neighbor is by listening to the needs and knowing the situation. Listening to the needs. When people are articulating their needs, we're hearing them and we're listening for a deeper or a true need, but we're at least seeking to meet the needs that they're communicating. And two, we're being sensitive in these situations. And this is so much more difficult than just saying, hey, look, if you show up at your, your, your Hindu neighbor's house and they say, look, we're just going to offer this to Vishnu, just, you, know, you say, hey, Vishnu, you can't do that. It's so much more difficult. Because this calls us to be sensitive. It calls us to look at the lives of the people all around us at the workplace when we go out to eat, when we show up at people's homes. 
This is so much broader in the 21st century than some first century uh, indication of, of whether or not to eat meat that's set before us when we find out it was sacrificed to idols. This isn't the life that most of us live today. How are you being neighborly? Are you considering how your actions, how your behaviors, how what you say or don't say positively and negatively impacts the people around you? And this is something that catches us in every walk of life, at every step along the way. Your life, the faith that God has given you, is a, meant to be a bridge for somebody else to walk across to get to Jesus. This is what it's meant to be. And in those moments, when we find out the way we're living, what we're doing is setting up obstacles and difficulties to other people having a, a vision of this beautiful picture of Jesus in you, of the gospel, you have to stop. And alternatively, when your refusal to engage and to move and to speak and to do is painting a negative picture of Jesus, it's an indication to us that we need to lean in and be engaged. And I think we fail on both grounds. We largely don't have difficult conversations with people about the more nuanced expressions of faith because we don't want to say the wrong thing and we don't want to offend. And I think that's an area where we fail to be a good neighbor. We fail to display what the goodness of God is. We fail to have these things in our inaction. And then there are areas of our action, either our political stances, that we put forward so much more pronounced than the gospel. The people don't want to have conversations with us because they primarily know us as a conservative Republican. Or they primarily know us as a person who's concerned with building a wall. Or they primarily know us as someone who wears a red hat with poor fonts. That, that was a reference to Trump and the Make America. Maybe you didn't get it. But when people primarily know us in these ways, before they know we're a Christian, before we know that we're a person who has been redeemed by Jesus, loved by God through Jesus, infused and directed by the Holy Spirit, when they know these tertiary things about us instead of our core identity, we fail. We're being disingenuous to what we've been created to be. Your life is a bridge that other people should be able to walk across to see Jesus, to meet Jesus. When we find out the meat's been sacrificed, we can't do it. Now, there are those of you who are saying, you know what? This all just seems a little bit touchy-feely. Like, this all just seems a little bit, little bit overboard. Well, you've got happy company there. Look at, look at where your first century counterpart said. He said, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? And if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced? Because of that for which I give thanks. In essence, they say, I have freedom to do these things, and I'm not going to allow my freedoms to be negatively impacted or truncated, shrunk, adversely affected by somebody else's preoccupation. This is, by and large, kind of my, my go-to when somebody says something to me. I just want to say, you, you got to get over it. you got to get over it. you got to suck it up. I don't have the privilege to say this. I don't have the opportunity to. Or else I'm just joining company with this person here in the first century that Paul has blasted for 2,000 years. 
And then you've got the other person that says, yeah, but what if like, I'm partaking with thankfulness? In essence, they're saying, look, I've already sanctified this meal. My heart is fine before God. I, just, I don't need to be bothered because I'm at a different level spiritually than the people around me. I believe Paul would say, and I believe God would have us know that we're being selfish in this indication. Your life is not meant to be lived as a selfish articulation of your faith, but your life is meant to be lived as a selfless opportunity to present Jesus boldly and graciously and compassionately to the people around you. To present such a compelling picture of Jesus that people, when they look at you and and, and they know something of you, they also at the same time know something of Jesus. This is what it is to seek the good of our neighbor. That as they get to know us, they get to know Jesus at the same time. So Paul wants us to understand that all these various spheres and orbits of our lives, that that all of these things exist, that God has raised you up and, and imparted you with faith and carried you along for the express purpose of someone else. Do you see how your life has an opportunity of producing a legacy of faith in people you've not even met yet? and neighbors you've not even known yet, and people for whom the goodness of God is waiting to be visited upon, and he's waiting for you to impact someone who can impact someone else, who can impact somebody else, who can bring the gospel to them. It's not, the Christianity is not an opportunity for us to have a selfish expression, an individualized expression of our privatized faith in God. It's an opportunity for God to use you mightily for his kingdom, So verse 31, he says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. For those in first century Corinth, it was good for them not to eat so they could tell of the greatness of Jesus. For those in first century Corinth, it was good for them to look odd and to stand out and to be be on the possibility of being an outcast at dinner parties for the glorious gospel of Jesus. And the same is true for you today. It is good that people know you as a Christian. Not because of the hypocrisy in your life, but because of the gloriousness of Jesus shining through. It is good that people experience the love of God through you loving them. This is what God has placed you there for, as a conduit of his grace and mercy. So Paul wants them to look at their sphere of influence, and and he finds three groups, and he says, we've got Jews here, we've got Greeks here, and we have the church of God here. And so in terms of kind of what we owe people in all these various experiences, he says that give no offense to Jews. Give no offense to them. Give no reason that as they look at your life, there's an opportunity for them to be negatively impacted for the gospel. Then he turns to the Greeks, these people that highly value wisdom. And he says, when when the Greek looks at you, when they evaluate the veracity, the truth claims of Christianity based on the way that you live and what you say, give no reason for them to be offended by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is offense enough. And then he says, in the church of God. Because Paul recognized there in Corinth, even in the first century, there were terrific difficulties, differences of opinions, and factionalism breaking up in the church. And so we find that it's, that it's still the case here in the 21st century. That when you have all these people together, that we're going to have different opinions and different ways of articulating and doing things. And I think that's a sweet grace that God gives us. Because it causes us, it forces us to work through our difficulties. 
Just like a marriage is made great by a husband having one opinion, a wife having another opinion, and them seeking to glorify God in the harmonizing of their views. And this is only compounded and made more difficult when they have children. And they have different parenting philosophies, and one of them is right and one of them is more right, right? (laughs) And they've got to figure that out, and then kids figure out they can pit mom and dad versus one another. And this sounds very much like a church. We don't want to give offense. I want the gospel to be more pronounced in, in, in your lives, in the lives of all the people I encounter, than in my own. And this is the way that all Christianity should be lived out. Now, why is this that we look at the Jew and we look at the Greek? Paul moves into verse 33. He says, just as I try and please everyone in everything I do. Now, recognize this is a logical impossibility. You can't do this. But do you see the heart motivation behind it? The heart motivation behind it sees others, just like Paul says in Philippians 2, of having more worth or significance than I myself have. So he says, I try and please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. Why? That they may be saved. Your life should paint a beautiful picture of the gospel. And your life is painting a picture of something. But likely, many of us, if we were just to submit a questionnaire to the people closest to us in our lives and submit a questionnaire to casual acquaintances that we've had, and say, look, I want you to articulate, I want you to describe what are the things that, that really drive me, that I'm passionate about, and the things that, that really define who I am. I think most of us would be shocked at what they would report of us. The things that we celebrate, the things that we love, are the things other people pick up on. And the vast majority, majority of us, if we were to ask people what they thought those things were in our lives, they would describe us. They would describe our families. And they would not describe Jesus. If we want to seek the good of our neighbor, we follow Paul in this idea of being an imitator of him as he is of Christ. Paul gives us this amazing picture of it in Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, writing to the church there, he says, Let each of you, he says, do nothing, verse 3, of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. And so this sounds like selflessness. This sounds like advancing the lives of the people around me. And so where does this come from? We recognize, as Philippians 2 carries on, that this comes from Jesus, who himself did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Seeking the good of those around us and seeking the good of our neighbor doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from Paul, but it comes from what we see in Jesus. So to be those people who carry his name, to be those people who follow him, is to be a people who seek to imitate him and being impactful in the lives of all those that he brings across our path. Let me pray for us. Father God, I pray that you would cause your word to come alive in our hearts, in our lives.
And I pray that you would give us this morning a clear picture of who our neighbors are. For some of us, it's going to be just as simple as getting to know the people that live in the house beside you. For some of us, it's going to be more difficult. We've lived in these homes. We've lived in this area for a long time. And we've done some really silly things. We've not shown your gospel to be beautiful. We've not shown Jesus to be loving. Because our lives have been lived as a selfish expression of our own privatized faith. So God, if that's who we are today, I pray that we would confess and repent. I pray that we would turn from that. That in a renewed effort to be in submission to your spirit, that you would cause men and women to come to know Jesus through the way that we live our lives. Father, I want to pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to your son Jesus. That they would recognize your great love for them in Jesus. That he came and lived a perfectly sinless life. That he died and rose again, overcoming sin and death so that they might come to know you and enjoy fellowship with you forever. That they have been forgiven in the goodness of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would make the truth of your word real and powerful and at work in our lives, that we would live life submitted to you so that you might be manifested in our lives and that you might be glorified in all things. And we pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.